0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Former President Donald Trump still not happy about being without a social media platform. Now he's responding. He's announced that he is suing Twitter, Facebook, Google. And he's alleging that his removal from those platforms was censorship. And to make this potential class action lawsuit happen, well, he is fundraising for that legal fund, of course. But how much of a chance does this lawsuit actually have? I mean, social media companies aren't government institutions. They're private companies. So let's talk more about that this morning with the help of our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, let's talk about that. What are kind of constitutional scholars saying? Because this argument from the former president is that it was unconstitutional.
1: Yes, and the way that the former president is phrasing this is that it's unconstitutional because he believes that these companies, uh, have a tie in to government, uh, because they are protected by a federal statute, uh, that allows them to avoid any kind of liability for the content that's posted on their website. It's 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 kind of a, a circuitous argument that really doesn't go anywhere because at the end of the day, well, they may have some protection. They are, like you said, a private company, and they have little chance. Uh, the pres the former president has little chance of this going anywhere because there is no infringement of freedom of speech here. You click the rules and regulations acceptance little button when you open up a Twitter page, uh, and you are therefore bound by their guidance. So this is going to be an uphill climb for Donald Trump.
0: Right, because nobody pays attention to it, but this is where that terms of use really comes in handy for these companies.
1: Yeah. And look, they have regulations that say if you violate the terms, there will be consequences, whether that means that your page is restricted, whether it means that you are blocked from being able to use it. You agree to that. Uh, and Donald Trump saw that there were consequences to the words that he put on social media in the moments after uh, the uh, insurrection in January and uh, the election kind of bogus claims that he has been making uh, for months now. Uh, and because of that, he was kicked out this is simply just uh, an extension of his anger.
0: OK, so let's talk about, though, the fundraising aspect of this.
1: Well, I mean, look, fundraising when it comes to Donald Trump uh, is is key and is crucial because uh, you need money to be in politics. And look, Donald Trump fundraised uh, for months and months on this uh, fake election scheme and scandal that he tried to to uh, say existed after right. uh, the November election. That money that people were paying into for all of these legal fights to go on, none of that money actually went anywhere. It just went into the coffers uh, of Donald Trump and allowed him to kind of move that money around through his own political action campaign. This is likely going to be no different. The the former president is using the money that is going to come in uh, and it is going to be unclear and it is unknown where that money is going to go to.
0: This is amazing then. So I remember all the fundraising that they did for the legal funds. And you're right. There weren't a whole lot of
1: legal challenges. So what do, do we know what happened to all of that money? Uh, some of it was spent elsewhere. Some of it was spent uh, to deal with uh, Donald Trump's uh, mounting legal bills. Uh, because remember, especially when it came to those claims of election fraud, and then you ended up having to go to court in numerous different states, and you had all these lawyers that were brought on, many of them, like Rudy Giuliani, said that he hadn't been paid. That money was supposed to go uh, and pay for that. A lot of it's still sitting in the bank. A lot of it is being used around. Because when you have a, a PAC or a super PAC, a political action campaign, uh, the money needs to be accounted for, but there are ways to be able to siphon that money around. Uh, and that is why there's kind of this scrutinous eye to what is Donald Trump ultimately trying to do with this uh, you know, new right. claim that he's going to sue these CEOs? Is this simply a way to stay in the spotlight as Joe Biden's popularity sits at 60 percent?
0: Right. So they can raise money for this. They can say it's a legal fund. They can say this is what they're going to do, but there's no legal obligation for them to actually use it for that.
1: No, there's 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 no legal obligation for them to have to use it for the uh, intent that it's being collected for. Because again, you know, it it all it, there's 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 it goes into a, a larger election right. campaign and finance uh, kind of uh, story here. But there are rules to how you collect your money. There's rules to how you spend that money. But when you own that political action campaign or that group, uh, you are kind of you know in charge of the money and seeing where it goes. Uh, and if you have people like Donald Trump has had within the Republican base now, not just since. The election and the months before, but really for right. four years, there are people that are willing to push your cause uh, along. And if Donald Trump is saying that he's using this money to now go after big tech, he is going to continue to get that money brought in. And as we've already seen, but doesn't really go very far, people don't really care if that money isn't spent where he says it needs to be spent. Well,
0: clearly, right? So, okay, so where we, he's at a couple of rallies,
1: right, recently, uh, and he's still drawing crowds. He is still drawing crowds, uh, and this is kind of emblematic as to where the Republican Party once was and where the Republican Party stands now. Donald Trump has not really stood down on these claims that he had this election stolen from him and there are still these conspiracies that he may be reinstated as president, uh, in August. He is, uh, riling up the base. Look, we're heading into midterm, uh, season, you know, just a couple of months away right. as the election is next year. He's doing what he can to draw in support. He's doing what he can to push out members of the Republican Party that are not falling in line with his claims uh, that the election was stolen from him. That is also where some of this uh, lawsuit against social media stands. If you're in the Republican Party and you're not holding on to the rope that Donald Trump is throwing out there, this is an opportunity for him to rally in your state, potentially put a primary against you and get you out to replace you with somebody that's going to fall in line.
0: It does feel like, Reggie, though, that the next like six months or so will be very critical for this, for, for the Republican Party anyway, to figure out, does that work, right? Does having that Donald Trump support mean you absolutely need it in order to win and they'll see how Joe Biden's uh, popularity because inevitably
1: those numbers will come down. They always do. They do come down, but they've held pretty steady now for the last few months. And it's because of his handling of the COVID pandemic that people see that Joe Biden is doing uh, a fairly well job. I mean, look, 60% is far higher than Donald Trump ever had uh, within his four years. I think what you need to look at is going back to this uh, lawsuit against the CEOs of social media. If this were to advance, Donald Trump is the lead plaintiff in this complaint now. Does that mean that he needs to now go to court and potentially testify and implicate himself in the January 6th riots, which is the reason why he kicked off of social media. If that is the case, what does that do to the people in the Republican Party that are going along with him? Does this become a siphon where people are like, well, maybe we need to steer away from Donald Trump? Uh, as this January 6th commission is being put together and more things come to light.
0: Well, it's always fascinating. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, talking about the lawsuit launched by former President Donald Trump against companies like Twitter, Facebook, Google. He's alleging his removal from those platforms was censorship, and they're now fundraising to make a potential class action lawsuit happen. This is Mornings with Simi. Take a good look around your neighbourhood at the trees you see there. Some of them have leaves turning brown at the edges. Maybe some have already fallen to the ground. That's more like what we would see in August. And it's another example of the dramatic impact that heat dome, the intense temperatures have had on our region. I saw this in my neighbourhood last week and it made me do a double take. We wanted to talk more about that this morning. Stephen Shepard joins us now, Professor of Forestry at UBC. Stephen, thanks for being here.
2: Uh thank you for inviting me.
0: Is this something that you see happening all over Metro Vancouver that we are seeing leaves turn brown and fall to the ground already?
2: Uh well, yes, we're seeing lots of reports of that. I've seen it on my own block in uh, Kitsilano with uh, some maple trees that have dropped leaves prematurely. So, uh, that appears to be, uh, you know, a, a direct result of the uh heat dome and those unprecedented temperatures that we had uh, last week.
0: What I- what is that doing to trees? Well,
2: trees, you you get above, you get much above 30 degrees centigrade, and uh, some plants just uh, start to get uh, damaged just by the heat. And and what we're seeing here is a sort of a combination of things very often, multiple threats, uh, most of them directly relatable to climate change, uh, like these extreme heat uh, peaks, uh, which are physiologically affecting, you know, the ability of uh, trees to transport water and uh, you know, and do all the things that they need to do to survive and they need to do to keep our neighborhoods cool. So uh, it's damaging the trees and and uh, things like drought. And uh, the longer the, the uh, lack of rainfall goes on, then the, the tougher it is for those trees and the more they're going to suffer.
0: Right. So is this something that we need to worry about then? Uh,
2: well, I would say yes, but I think we have to put it in the context of a number of things. Uh, just because they're uh, dropping leaves early doesn't necessarily mean the trees are going to die. That's probably not going to be the case in the short term. But those trees could die if we don't water them over the long haul in, in these dry periods. And it's very difficult for the cities uh, with their current budgets to actually water not only the young trees that have been planted, which we need for the future, and the older trees. You know, we've got a lot of urban old growth in uh, in places like Vancouver and some of the older cities in BC. And we're going to need to have a much more uh, robust watering regime and stewardship regime for those trees to keep them alive. We need them to stay safe so that they can keep us safe.
0: So, right, because we've also talked about how important it is to have shade cover, you know, especially with the kind of temperatures we saw last week. So what can we do in our neighbourhoods to help out?
2: Well, there are plenty of things that we can and probably should be doing. Um so for things like street trees, uh, you know, we could have an adopt a tree program where pretty much every uh, homeowner, uh, you know, maybe sort of adopts and looks out for uh, the trees on their block like they do in the city of Melbourne. Everybody emails their tree in Melbourne so that they can uh, report any problems coming with their tree. But they could also water them, you know, watering, watering them once a week. During droughts is might be pretty vital where these soils aren't that uh, um, you know have enough organic matter to keep the moisture in the ground. So that's a big watering's a big thing, but also other things like planting new trees to take over when the old ones eventually die. Uh, we don't have enough canopy in some of our neighbourhoods in many cities and that's a direct threat to human safety and you know people's uh, quality of life.
0: Uh, it's interesting to hear there that you said that other cities around the world do have programs where they are dealing with this.
2: Yes, and and I should say there are some very good programs in in BC as well for various kinds of ways to engage people on uh, you know their their local trees and tree planting and in their in their private yards because that's also very important. We don't have enough trees in the alleys and in the private yards, in urban settings. And I do want to make clear this is talking about urban settings where there's lots of water and lots of deciduous trees, which are less fire prone. Right.
0: Um,
2: but yeah, there are there are many good programs. San Francisco, Portland's got some great programs, um, and some of those are in place. But it varies a lot by city. And one of the sort of simple ways to sort of, if you want to learn more about this, is look up some some of these resources and guides. And one of them is the Citizens Cool Kit, which uh, we've developed at UBC with a lot of help from, from cities and others. Um, and that's a kind of a fun visual guide to how to look after your neighborhood and mm-hmm. and respond to climate change.
0: Well, that's the thing, Stephen, I was thinking about, too, is that usually for some people, climate change just seems like this big, broad issue that maybe they can't kind of wrap their head around. This really brings it home, doesn't it?
2: Well, it's a wake up call. Yeah. And and I think this is the the point that we've all missed is that, you know, you can see climate change right outside your front door. And it's not just the the brown leaves during a heat wave. It's, it's, you know, how much green space have we got? How much shade do we have? How much canopy? Um, you know, we have a, a fun exercise that anyone can play in their own own block called the leaping squirrel test, where you just basically walk down the street and see if a squirrel can go from one end of the block to the other. If it can, without coming down to the ground, then you've sort of got enough canopy Lots of places don't have that shade and that stormwater protection and air pollution uh, reduction that these trees bring. So that's pretty important.
0: I'm going to do that when I go home today and see how that goes. (laughs) Try it out, try it out. A lot of people enjoy it. (laughs) Stephen, thank you so much for that. Okay. Appreciate your time. That's Stephen Shepard, Professor Forestry at UBC. Great point about adopting the trees in your neighbourhood, especially if they've been recently planted. Even trees on the street there probably need a little extra water right now with what's going on, and believe me, we need that shade. So look after the trees in your neighbourhood. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of industries are starting to ramp up again now that the pandemic, you know, seems to be easing. People are starting to think about travel again. But does that mean you're going to be booking it yourself? Will you get some help from a travel agency? Because travel agencies could use the help right now. Many of them are on the brink, especially now that federal supports are winding down. For more on that, we're joined by Wendy Paradis, who's the president of the Association of Canadian Travel Agencies. Wendy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. How dire is the situation right now for travel agencies? Well,
3: travel agencies, like many businesses in the travel industry in Canada, have been without any revenue um, for over 15 months now. So our members have experienced a 90-plus decline in revenue from 2019 and very interesting that 2019 was the most successful and busiest year in the history of travel, not only in Canada, but around the world. So the impact has been quite devastating.
0: Oh, what a dramatic like whiplash that is then for travel agents, right, to go from the busiest year, best year ever to what happened in 2020. So how have they been hanging on? Well, I think that, um, like many
3: businesses, that uh, travel agency um, leaders, uh, owners, independent travel agents have gone in and they have um, cut as many expenses as possible. However, as you know at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, that we had um, tens and of thousands of people stranded all over the world, and um, so travel agents worked very hard to bring all those Canadians home. And then there were um, hundreds of thousands of pending bookings. So even though that um, there were no new bookings because of the pandemic we have been working on the same files over and over and over again because of the lack of information around borders whether that was provincials and borders in 2020 and now um, the international border in 2021 that um, we are touching client bookings four five six times So um, really what's happened is that uh, travel agents have been working all through the pandemic helping clients. Um, But unfortunately, that um, there hasn't been a lot of travel for sure. So they have been very, very creative. um, And there is light at the end of the tunnel for us. We know from all of the consumer polling that Canadians have been dreaming about travel for the last 15 months and that they intend to travel. Yes. So the future is really bright for our industry like it was in 2019, but we're just running out of runway right now.
0: Right. I was actually talking to a travel agent just this week because I was booking something, actually, and she was saying how wonderful it was to be able to talk to a happy person, (laughs) you know, because you've had to deal with a lot of unhappy people not getting refunds, wanting this, wanting that. And this hopefully is the start of something better. Absolutely.
3: And I think that um, one of our greatest disappointments and concern at this moment is that uh, we do not have a border plan. The government has not given us the conditions and metrics when the border would open we are We are reliant on understanding what the future is about our borders and what those metrics are. And so, whether you're a travel agency, you're an airline, you're an airport, or you're the two million workers in Canada that are associated with the travel and tourism industry that um, as you probably know, that the government financial programs Um, started to decline dramatically a few days ago. And we are hugely disappointed that that has taken place Mm -hmm. um, when there's been no action around the borders. So our message is that uh, the future is bright. You've invested in us for the last 15 months. And um, we really feel that the carpet is being pulled right at the 11th hour here when really recovery is um, really a few months away for us.
0: Well, Wendy, uh, fingers crossed. Let us know how it goes. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Wendy Paradis is a president of the Association of Canadian Travel Agencies. They said they're so close to rebounding, but they're, how did she put it? They're running out of runway, essentially, where the federal supports are winding down, borders aren't open, so not enough travel to keep of the travel agency, she said, afloat out there. If you want to weigh in, are you ready to travel? Are you ready to go? Are you going to use a travel agent when you do that? Simi at cknw.com. Let me know how you do that planning. Do you look for that help, and are you going to maybe right now because the industry could use it? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Just about every summer, B.C. deals with the impact of wildfires. Some years are worse than others. This year looks like it's shaping up to be one of the bad ones, with more than 200 fires early in the season. We are going to be getting an update from the B.C. Wildfire Service coming up later this half hour. Uh, but is this, if this is really the new normal, what do we need to do to mitigate the impact? I mean, how can we help our forests recover and protect them in the future. Well for more on that, we're joined by Katrine Conway, the Minister of Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development. Thank you for being here this morning. Hi, Simeon. Thanks for having me. Does it concern you kind of where we are at this point in the season, seeing that we have more than two hundred fires going? Yeah, it's, it's a
4: bit we bit concerning. Yeah. It it um you know it's it's been a an emotional few days. We uh um yeah, on Tuesday the Premier and Minister Farnworth and I went up to Kamloops and talked to the folks fighting the fires up there and at the BC Fire Center and, and as well we we went down to Wet. we flew over Lit and, <clears throat> and we saw the destruction that how devastating it's been for that community and, and just so it, it was a you know a, a real you know, heads up of of what uh, what we need to do, and and I just I want to say too, my my heart really goes out to the family, friends, and community of those who lost their lives in in the Litton wildfire and lost their homes, and I think a lot of people in, in BC are reeling from. You know, seeing that the fear of losing your or like leaving your home in in a fire and then not knowing if it's there upon your uh, Mm -hmm. return—it's—it's—it happened very um, right here in Castlegar where I live. My own dad was evacuating; like he came and stayed here for the night just because of a fire that was so close to his home. So it's it's a real
0: concern. I think so. I think also with the heat dome, you know, even Metro Vancouver, where people think of wildfires as happening, perhaps elsewhere in the province, all of it seems to have really come home to us in the last week or two, the impacts Mm -hmm. of this intense heat. How can we help our forests with this, Minister Conway? What are we going to be doing when wildfire season is over?
4: Well, we have to do a lot of, of um, fire smart actions, and, and uh, we've got grants for community resiliency for people to go out and, and look at how can we look at our surroundings, and, and, and just even at home, we can do that ourselves at home, you know, to make sure that, you know, we can do really easy things like keeping our, our roof and gutters clean, you know, moving firewood if we if you have firewood, or propane away from your home. and keeping your grass cut, but having an evacuation plan. Those are all simple things we can do. And FireSmart BC that has been doing an incredible program of working with communities to help to FireSmart the communities. They've got a, a great website, FireSmart.ca. But it's um, you can go on there and look and, and see the steps that you can take. And, and also things like re, you know, respecting when people ask you to stay out of the backcountry, when, you know, refrain from campfires even though there's a campfire ban there's a there's a fireworks ban we still heard of people that are having campfires and think they can do it if they keep it small well they can't and they, you cannot have fireworks right now i mean it doesn't matter where you live or what you're doing you cannot have fireworks in this province and and taking that seriously that's what we're asking. I mean, we've got incredible people working on trying to save the, the forest and save people's homes and families. And, and it's, they need the support from people in the province. And, and doing things smart is one of those right. things that everybody
0: can do. Right. An uncomfortably large number of these fires continue to be human-caused, as you mentioned there. So do we need to crack down harder? Do we need to send that message that, listen, if wildfire season is going to be getting worse out there, we, we can't afford anybody to make these stupid mistakes.
4: Well, we've been saying that, and although the Premier did say the other day, you can't legislate against stupidness, which uh, is it frustrating. But we're asking people to, you know, and to reach out if you see your neighbour having a campfire to tell them you can't do that. You know, like it's, it's, uh, it puts everybody at risk. It doesn't matter how safe you think they are. That's why they're called accidents. That's why they're called wildfires. It's, uh, you know, it's, and, and lightning's an issue, too. I mean, half the fires are, are, are caused by, by people, the other half are lightning. And, and we just all need to, to do more to work together to ensure that we're supporting each other and, and keeping our eye out for neighbors to support them, especially in the heat. I mean, that was, right. that was unprecedented itself.
0: What kind of work are we doing in our forest, though, like about cleaning forest floor, um, you know, mitigating wildfires in the off-season, what are we doing? We're doing
4: quite a bit of work on that, like working with communities, working with regional districts, um, ensuring that they've got the the funds to go out and, and work in their areas to determine which are the areas that need the thinning, <clears throat> excuse me, working with, with contractors, forestry contractors in the province are also, you know, looking out for those those issues that can be dealt with during the off-season and, <clears throat> excuse me, Sammy Got But um, you know, so we we have done quite a bit, and especially in the last couple of years, and and we will continue to do more. We know that there's more to do. The community resilience investment program is done quite a bit. We've been doing that through the Inference Forest Enhancement Society of BC, and I think everybody can take steps to reduce the risk and the impact. And and I just uh, right now it's just. Take it. Don't uh, don't do high risk activities that could create a fire.
0: Yeah, I know. I guess we can't really say that enough, though. I think, no, given can't. the fact that we're hearing from firefighters and others that people are still having campfires or beach fires or fires in parks, like people are still doing this. Yes,
4: I know. It's it's crazy. I mean, you think you know you just I mean the, the it it was so you know it was pretty emotional and quite just to fly over Lytton and see the the damage, the destruction that a fire that within 20 minutes uh, could move that quickly through a community and devastate it and you know it's t- and you just have to look at that to think what am i doing you know why would i even think of lighting uh, a, you know, a campfire. It's just, it, it's just crazy. So it's, you know, we're, we're doing as much as we can, but, uh, like you say, everybody has to do their part.
0: And so do we need to ramp up then for the next couple of years? I mean, we've had what in the last five years, I think four out of five of those years have been bad wildfire seasons, maybe three out of five mm-hmm. of those years. So do we need to emphasize this more?
4: Well, I think we do, and, and we also, you know, climate change is making a, an issue, as obviously as we all are affected by it. And, and we have, I mean, our our wildfire service—they have been, you know, pretty have a one of the. It's a world class uh, fire service. It's uh, the uh, the people that that run the the BC wildfire are doing an amazing job. The the people that are working, I mean, we when you think of it, there's been 748 fires since April 1st. And right now there's 200 burning, and, and of that 13 are of note. So, you know, it's that that's pretty incredible. Um, pretty, you know, the amazing work that's been done. I mean, we've got to watch it front and center here last week, and and just to see the teamwork that comes into collaboration when you bring in the city, the municipality, you know, and, and the regional district, and the and then the BC Wildfire Service all working together. You know, it, it was just so amazing to see, and the work that was done to you know to be able to Save people's homes and mm-hmm. lives. It's you know we we have to support them, and so moving forward, I, I know we have an incredible team and and we're supporting them. I mean, right now we've we've got well over two thousand people working in the out there working, and we've got contractors, but we also have at, reached out to the um, the Canadian um, wildfire services to look at, uh, and they've uh, su- supplied us with. We have ninety three extra firefighters that uh, personnel have come in from New Brunswick and Quebec. Um, they've arrived yesterday, so they're you know going to be helping too. And we you know that interagency forest fire center that's uh, the Canadian interagency um, has been great. But it, I mean, it's a a problem across Canada. Things are you know heating up across Canada, yeah. so people are valuing their resources. Um, but uh, we we even are talking to our our neighbors south and who we helped out last year quite a bit when we didn't have quite the the fires that we have this year or years past but uh, so we're looking at how can we help
0: each other all right well listen thank you very much for your time this morning thank you simi really appreciate it this is mornings with simi We've been talking this morning about the different ways that the hot temperatures, especially during the heat dome there, impacted uh, different things around Metro Vancouver, Southern Coast, all throughout BC. Well, let's talk about Okanagan fruit growers who know that all too well. Many of them are suffering because their cherry crops got scorched in those 40 plus degrees, even if it was for a few days. What it has meant hundreds of thousands of dollars in loss for some farmers and meaning you maybe won't find BC cherries as widely available as you normally would in the days and weeks ahead. It looked like it was going to be a great crop and then didn't turn out that way at all. Joining us now is Paul Ball, who's the president of the BC Cherry Association. Sikpal, thank you for joining us.
5: Hey, good morning to me.
0: How bad is it for cherry farmers out there right now?
5: Well, uh, last week we uh, we were fearing the worst, and because uh, uh, the we didn't know when the damage was was going to stop. And uh, thankfully, this week we're a bit more optimistic. Uh, we have to look uh, look to the uh, the bright side and, and look after the the cherries that did survive. And uh, from it ranges uh, across the valley uh, some people did suffer uh, some huge losses and and maybe not viable to to pick their their blocks but um there there are still some beautiful cherries out there and 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 there's there is some reason for for optimism but uh, definitely, definitely uh, uh, there was some uh, some losses throughout the valley and, and very unfortunate as as you said this is this is one of our our nicest crops that we've had in in, in decades
0: oh really so things were looking pretty good
5: yeah, it, it, they were they were looking excellent. Considering uh, twenty nineteen, we had excessive rain um, uh, and we uh, suffered a lot of damages from from rain. As as your, your listeners may know, the cherries split once uh, once rain uh, lands on them, so we have to dry them off as soon as we can. Twenty twenty, uh, we had a, an extreme uh, cold event that uh, that uh, kind of killed the fruit buds. They didn't get a chance to grow from the from the get go. And uh, and so we were worried about cold, and uh, this extreme heat caught us off guard. We we were definitely not not expecting this. So so this is kind of the third third year in a row we we suffered some some huge losses.
0: So what happened to the cherries then, Sigpal, with that extreme heat?
5: What did it do to well, them? Yeah, it's it, it, it like you said, it really just scorched them. It it cooked them, and the the ones that that suffered were um, with the cherries. The, they, there's a lot of leaves on the tree. But there are some cherries that are exposed to the, to the full sunlight because uh, there's just not not the uh, equal amount of, of leaves as there are cherries. So, so the cherries that were on the outside uh, edges of the orchard or, or more in, in the tops of the tree that didn't have the leaf coverage, those just took the intense heat uh, uh, all day long. And and we we do uh, get close to 40 in the Okanagan the odd time, and that's that's considered very hot. But this was uh, unprecedented to be uh, you know in the in the mid 40s for hours and hours on end throughout the day uh, it just uh, yeah just literally cooked the cherries right there
0: is there any way to redeem them i know that if you're a fruit grower you know produce grower you have to find ways to adapt right or pivot when something happens to your crop
5: yeah and with uh, with if there is a, a fruit that is slightly damaged, or you know uh, that uh, you know isn't isn't available for the fresh market, there there are value added um, you know uh, processing, but there the the return to the grower is quite low. And, um, and but then with this intense heat, like those those cherries have have. have so I've seen some of them go and go completely black and, and just shrivel up. So there, there is, is no value uh, for for the for the cherry itself now. But but there's a there's a bigger question on on you know farming in British Columbia and handling these intense uh, uh, weather conditions. Uh, I think there's a bigger discussion to be had as a, how how can we really make farming viable moving forward? Is it is it um, you know agri that needs to be investigated more? You know how how can we have farmers making money and and that's and that's getting to be a challenge. It, it's it's tough enough to farm with just the uh, labor challenges and the regular weather events. Now mm-hmm. we've added extreme weather to the list, and and it is going to be a, a, a huge challenge. And I you know I really don't know if, if if farmers can get through this.
0: Yeah, you mentioned agritourism, then. Then so how is that different? For instance, like if you're a cherry grower, is it is it too difficult? Do you think to just grow one crop?
5: Yeah, it, it's well. We've because of the 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 sheer cost structure of how expensive it is to to farm in British Columbia. Land, we have some of the most expensive land in the world, uh, and uh, and it's very difficult to to attract the labor. So our costs are much higher, and we have to look for those crops that that bring a, a good return. Um, cherries, uh, they're they're they they are an expensive uh, crop because they're they're very delicate and difficult to grow. So that's that's kind of where a lot of growers here have moved towards that uh, that high value crop, but it, it's it's not it's not as consistent as it should be because we're dealing with so many extremes. So when I when I talk about agri tourism. Uh, mainly, we we are in a tourist area. People love to come to the Okanagan, uh, Kelowna, where where I'm based. Uh, tourists love coming here. So I think uh, from the uh, provincial government, municipalities, we have to have some some better policy that can fit with um, with uh, tourism and and operations. And and I I'm I'm a passionate farmer. Farming has to be the main thing but additional income that can can enhance a farm and that's where the income from these, uh, if it's events or, or, or accommodation, what have you, that that revenue, that goes back into the farm. And that, that's, it's some kind of a safety net that, that we have to allow the farmers to, to enhance so that we do have farming moving forward for, for future generations here in, in the valley, in the province.
0: So Paul, that's so interesting. So what you're saying is kind of like what we see, you see a lot of that in Metro Vancouver, right? Particularly with berry farms, whether it's a blueberry farm or strawberry farm, whatever the case, but Allowing people to come in and pick, allowing people to buy your product, having other things for them to do when they come to the farm. So you're saying turning farms into like a tourism destination.
5: Yeah, and and it has to be managed very delicately. Uh, Farms are not standardized across the province. There you can you can travel you know uh, just around Kelowna and see many, many different farms and, and you go to the Fraser Valley they're they're very different so when it comes to policy it almost has to be on a on a case by case and you know present what you'd like to do on your farm and a judgment can be made that if this makes sense and and that's where where some of the policy has been has been uh, I don't think it's taken the right approach because it's a blanket policy. But all the A L R land and farmland is not the same, so it's very difficult to to apply. And uh, you know, if one tourist uh, plan in one place that may not work in, on a two-acre place in a, in an urban setting that is A L R land. So that that's where I think uh, the the thought has to go right from the top at the A L C. How are we managing people that actually farm the land and that's their main income mm-hmm. and people that are just residing on ALR land? We just can't be throwing the same policies out that apply to everybody. We, we need to identify who are farmers and how can we start helping them? And that's, and that's a, the big discussion that needs to happen because there, there's been excellent work on preserving farmland that, you know, it needs to be farmland. That's great. With the second step of the the land commission, their mandate it is to improve and enhance agriculture, and that is the spot that the part that I'd like to see the provincial government and the ALC, and along with municipalities focus mm-hmm. on that next item. How do we make uh, farming uh, uh, you know thrive in, right. in the province?
0: So Paul, then talking about the cherry crop, what can people expect to see in the stores? Will there still be lots of BC cherries?
5: Yeah, uh, def- definitely. There was it was a large crop, uh, thankfully, so there was there was lots of volume on the trees. Um, you know uh, the, the, the the fruit on the outside, as I mentioned, that, that kind of got sacrificed by the heat. But um, I've been I've been driving up and down our rows, and and I get a lot of time to stare into the trees and see. And uh, I do I do see a lot of uh, nice cherries. So so uh, you know, uh, people in the in the lower mainland and throughout BC should be should be seeing a, a lot of uh, cherries coming into the stores. And and we're just gearing up to be uh, shipping out to the export markets as well.
0: All right. Well, that's some good news there, Paul, Thank you so much for your time. All right, thanks. And best of luck with the farm this year. That's Paul Ball, who's president of the BC Cherry Association. Many farmers suffered hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage to their cherry crops. And they said the fortunate thing is, though, that before the heat dome had arrived, they did have a pretty good crop this year. So there will be enough. But still, lots of damages out there that farmers are going to, with the hopefully help of government, find a way to deal with that. This is Mornings with Simi post secondary students aren't exactly known for making the best choices when it comes to nutrition. In my first semester at university, my favourite item from the vending machine was an ice-cold can of Coke at 8 in the morning for early mornings on campus. I know, totally gross, right? I look back at my 18-year-old self and shake my head in horror. Well, the thing is, the choices in vending machines aren't always healthy and great. Well, there is a company that's hoping to change that. And in fact, if you are up at SFU and you're there all night and the cafeterias and the different places are closed and you do need something to eat, there is going to be some more choice for you in that regard. And we're going to learn all about that right now. Jovan Chung is with us, the co-founder of Grub Grab. Jovan, thanks for being here this morning.
6: Super excited to be here. Thank you, Simi.
0: Who has the idea of putting healthy food in a vending machine, Jovan? Where does that come from? Um,
6: Honestly, it does come from the founder of oatmeal. That's Drew Monroe. And um, I think he's had this idea for about two years now. And it all comes down to actually, it starts at the corporate environment before we even look at the campus environment. He ran one of the biggest catering companies in Vancouver, DCE. And they just saw a shift where, their clients actually wanted meals around the clock. You know, um, they wanted corporate catering at 11 at night and sometimes early, early in the morning. And they really couldn't do that because catering is usually done, you know, at one time, lunchtime, that's usually what it is. And uh, when, when uh, they were uh, so they were actually our meal, Grub Grab central meal supplier. And when they told us they were doing that, we were very excited and we kind of wanted to get in that, um, Grub Grab did. And so we started doing that and it kind of seemed like, hey, you know, now, our visions are quite aligned. So maybe an acquisition makes sense. And that's how that started. And now we're actually um, just spearheading the campus initiatives. So we're targeting SFU and then now we're, we're gonna be kinda you know, attack a whole bunch of other campuses and make sure students have uh, accessibility around the clock.
0: Right, but Jovan, I don't exactly think of healthy food when I look at vending machines. I mean, that's not what our vending machine here at work <laughs> is known for. So what are the challenges in doing that?
6: no honestly you, you've nailed it spot on i remember one of the very first conversations i had with drew about this is the fact that um you know how can we make how can we distances as far as possible from vending machines because when you think of vending machines you're thinking about like six month old lathe chips that have maybe have a layer of dust on afterwards <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes that, yeah like in, in certain environments these vending machines like are barely getting used right so like look at UBC, I, I honestly don't know how often those vending machines are getting used, and um, it comes down to the fact that because now people want healthy options, right? So how can we how can we make these vending machines what we're what we're introducing? How can we make them as far as apart from vending machines? Well, the first step is putting in very very fresh items, so things that expire quickly, so people think, okay, hey, you know, these aren't just um, non-perishable items. So how can we get avocado? based foods in there because, you know, avocados go That's brown crazy. after a while, right? How can exactly. you put
0: anything avocado based in a vending machine?
6: Yeah, um, we, we, we are. And, and, and you definitely can. That's because, I mean, our machines are very smart and we can like check the temperature remotely, control that temperature remotely and see a whole bunch of cloud stats.
0: Huh. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So what are, what other items are you going to put in there that you think would attract people?
6: Um, wraps, wraps, bowls, snacks, and then we're looking at also cold pressed juices. And I think that's going to be the hit because, you know, if if you're walking, if you're on campus and you're walking to class, sometimes you just want to get that quick, you know, shake in you. And, and that's huge too, right? I remember how many times, like you probably, you know this too, and you, when you wake up and you obviously sometimes you, you sleep in and you don't have time to eat and you just got to like quickly drink something, right? And having a smoothie is, is pretty important. and I, I mean, at, at campus, especially because I went to UBC and, the only thing that you could quickly grab and grow, go is, like, boosters, a booster juice, but the booster juice line is, like, 10 people, so you, you're going to be yeah. extremely late to class if you're trying to slam a booster juice on the way.
0: Okay, so you're doing this pilot program at the West Mall area of SFU up on the Burnaby campus there. When does that get underway?
6: So we're aiming to actually launch at the uh, soft launch for integration mid-August. And then a hard launch where we're going to be holding a whole bunch of launch events, doing a bunch of giveaways. um, First week to second week of September. So we're it's gonna it takes about three or four weeks to integrate the machines because the whole process, because each machine is custom fit for that location, and we do a lot of prep work beforehand, like make sure that we know we're putting in the right stuff. You know, like as just what what are we putting in to the machine, and that all depends on the client and customer. Mm-hmm. So we do a whole bunch of, you know, consumer surveys to make sure, like, okay, maybe they don't want wraps, right? Depending on, depending on the client and the environment, and then based off of that, then we integrate the machine.
0: Okay, so you think there. that if you've got these machines side by side, so one of your healthy machines and then like a regular vending machine, <laughs> yeah, you think that somebody is going to pick the wrap or the salad versus potato chips and a Kit Kat?
6: I do think so, and I think it, it comes down to how how you can convey that message to you know, down to students and how you can price them effectively, right? Because if you're paying maybe three bucks for chips, and now you can get a really good wrap for about six bucks, I think students will pay for that, right?
0: I guess that's what you're hoping too. So uh, is there there any area that's already doing something like this? Um, Do you mean outside of Metro Vancouver? Well, just like, yeah, is this working elsewhere? Okay, yeah. So there's
6: a company called Farmer's Fridge, and they've actually just crushed it in the States. I mean, they're, 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 they raised a huge like $40 million round of investment about two, a year and a half ago. And um, there they had, I think they had four, over 400 kiosks just in the Midwest of the United States. And um, their, their strategy was different. They, were, they started tackling the corporate environment and then the hospital environment and then uh, airports and then, um, and then schools. So they kind of, they kind of, they were targeting more so corporate and then airports. And I think actually just going back on that, and then during COVID, they they kind of slowed down a bit and now it's starting to pick up really quickly. So that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, actually I just looked them up while you said that. That's fascinating. So you're saying there's yeah. a lot of room to grow here. People are willing, do you think, to spend the money?
6: I think so. And I think it comes down to the fact that now we just have so much more information about what we're eating and we're, we're so much more conscientious about what we are eating and what goes into us and we're just trying to make ourselves as efficient as possible right and and it comes down to what we're putting in ourselves and how how, how good we feel about that
0: I guess is the competition really the other vending machine or is it meal delivery apps That's
6: that's actually a great question and honestly I think I think it's both right so if if we circle back to UBC UBC has like over over a few hundred drivers alone coming in every day to campus for Uber Eats, DoorDash, and Skip the Dishes, which that's ridiculous. Think about hundreds of drivers coming in, almost like almost near a thousand on some weekends, just to deliver food. And so that is competition because if if dining options and restaurants and nearby cafes for students close at 7 p.m., the next option is to you know order from Uber Eats. Or, I mean, they can run to a vending machine. So I would say it's more so more so definitely delivery partners, but definitely vending machines are there. But since you're competing about accessibility and convenience for more fully prepared meals, then it's definitely going to be um, these delivery companies. And they, they've changed the dynamic definitely too for campuses, right?
0: Right, so you're actually a threat because I know students—they love their meal delivery apps, right? Post-secondary, oh, yeah.
6: even high school students. So, oh, oh yeah, definitely. Like my little brother, he's an addict for Skip the Dishes. He's like top ten customer in Surrey, right? So,
0: yeah. Okay, you've got a lot of work to do. I'm going to be fascinated to see how this turns out, Jovan. Thank you so much for your time this morning.
6: No, thank you for having me.
0: That is Joe Van Chung, who's the co-founder of GrubGrab. So they are going to be installing this pilot program, Healthy Vending Machine. So it's not just going to be like healthy snack choices like granola bars and things like that. It's going to be wraps and salads and maybe even smoothies and juices, cold-pressed juices, things like that. So will somebody, do you think, if you were hungry in the middle of the night, studying hard, is that the choice that do you think students would make or even in general? Wouldn't you like to have one of those vending machines where you work, perhaps? You should see what's in our vending machine. Three rows of cheesies and three rows of chocolate chip cookies and a whole lot of potato chips. I actually wouldn't mind having a vending machine like that, too.